Well, as you're grabbing your seat, let me encourage you to take your Bibles out and turn them open to Mark chapter 1, to the passage that was just read for us. And as you're finding your way to Mark chapter 1, let me remind you that everyone in this room and every person outside of this space, there's one thing that we share in common, and that is that we are all worshipers, that to worship is as natural and as common of a human experience as breathing. It's instinctive. It cannot be avoided. It is inevitable that every one of us will worship in every moment of every day, meaning we are drawing life from something, and we are ascribing worth to something. And it matters a large deal who or what we are drawing life from and who or what we are giving worth to because worship is, at its core, formative. What that means is is that who or what we are worshiping is going to form our lives, is going to shape our lives, is going to imprint itself upon us in a noticeable, tangible way. Worship is formative. And because worship is formative, that means it matters who or what we are worshiping. A guy by the name of David Foster Wallace, uh, sorry, George David Wallace, who said many, uh, several years ago now, he was, uh, this is a man who did not believe in God, who was not a Christian, but yet he kind of dialed in on this dynamic of the human experience, believing that we are all worshipers in every moment of every day. And, and he points out how, how dangerous it is for us to worship some, someone or something that isn't good for us. And listen to what he says. He said, here's something that is weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. That it will devour you. It will wound you. It will hurt you. It will harm you. He goes on, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough or feel as though you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What he's cueing us in on is the fact that a person's deepest wounds are usually worship wounds. That our deepest wounds are worship wounds. It's when we have sought to draw life from a person, place, or thing other than our creator or other than our Christ. Those things leave us wounded. Those things harm us. They eat us alive to use his language. And when we think about who we are as a church and what we value, one of the ways that we want to posture ourselves towards the city in which we live is we think about our values as a, as a faith family and as a church. We've said over the past several weeks, introducing about four core values, the first of which was a table. And we said that we as a church value the image of the table and what it represents, reminding ourselves that Jesus leverages ordinary moments for extraordinary in extraordinary ways. And so we want to turn our tables into places of grace, community, and mission. We said last week that we value the image of the towel, believing that Jesus came into the world not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. 
And as those who are being served by Jesus right now, we are free and liberated to serve anyone and everyone around us, including those who might betray us like a Judas or those who might deny us like a Peter. We are willing to serve everyone because we're being served by Jesus right now. And then today, we're going to introduce another image that speaks to one of our core values, and it may be the quirkiest one of them all, but it's also the most important, and it's the image of the tourniquet. It's the image of the tourniquet that speaks to this reality that our deepest wounds are worship wounds, that we are all hurting in various ways. Some of us are wounded because of our misplaced worship, and our misplaced worship has created wounds in our lives various wounds that have inflicted us in various ways, but then some of us may be wounded because of the misplaced worship of others so that others have treated us or mistreated us in ways that have left us wounded and their misplaced worship has not served us well. It has, in a sense, been eating us alive and so we recognize that our deepest wounds are worship wounds and what we love about the gospel And what we love about Jesus is that Jesus has the power and the ability to meet us in the deep places of life. He's willing to meet us where we are most wounded, applying his life and his death and his resurrection in nuanced and effective ways so that healing can come, restoration happen, wholeness be restored, so that we might find ourselves in the worship of Jesus becoming our true selves Bearing the image of our creator in a beautiful way. Knowing and learning what it means to be truly human who's loved by God and able to love other people. All because of this healing work that Jesus is producing in our lives 24 hours a day, 7 days a week as we are living by faith in him. And drawing life from him. And ascribing worth to him above and beyond any other person, place, or thing in the world. So our deepest wounds are worship wounds, and Jesus has come to bring healing to the deepest places of our lives. And I want to illustrate that for you tonight by looking at this passage in Mark chapter 1. It's one of the most beautiful stories where Jesus heals a wounded worshiper, so to, so to speak. He meets a wounded worshiper on the streets, and he brings healing to this man's life in a beautiful way. It's such a beautiful picture of what Jesus, what he does in the life of this man and how it serves as an illustration for what Jesus is doing in our lives right now. It's such a beautiful picture that J.C. Ryle, a, a guy who wrote back in, I think, the 19th century, he said, of all of our Lord's miracles of healing, none were probably more marvelous than those performed on leprous people. And what I want us to do tonight is I want us to look at this story and I want to show you why that is. Because why, why it's a beautiful thing what he does in the life of this leper because it's the type of thing he is doing in you and in me this very moment. And so the passage begins in verse 40 where we meet this wounded worshiper in verse 40, a, a man who's described by his condition. He's described by his state. It says that a, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, willing you can make me clean. So you have this leper, and this leper was wounded in a variety of ways. And and I want you to think about some of the ways in which he's wounded, because it's not just one condition. It's not just one situation that he's bringing to Jesus. It's his entire self that has been wounded and afflicted by this disease that he has suffered for some time up to this point. On one hand, he was wounded physically. He was wounded physically because he suffered a disease that was leaving him disfigured. 
a disease that was causing his body to deteriorate, and he was literally falling apart. This word leprosy is a word used to describe about 72 diseases back in the day. Most notably, or perhaps most commonly, what we are familiar with is what's called Hansen's disease, which was what we would call something like what this guy is experiencing. This is a disease that attacked the nervous system, and over time it would prohibit this man from feeling pain or physical sensation. So that if you were to go to a third world country where, where a person may be suffering from leprosy, it's not uncommon for them to go to sleep and in the middle of the night wake up and look down on their bed to find vermin chewing on their extremities, chewing on their toes and their feet without even feeling it. Dumb and numb to what is happening around them because the way that this disease afflicts them. And so lepers literally deteriorate. They literally fall apart. It's why many has described this as death by inches. It's just death by inches over time as you are deteriorating. A man by the name of Josephus, a Jewish historian written several, many, many hundred years ago now, he said that a leper was in no way, practically speaking, no way different from a corpse, which is why it was believed in the first century that if you could take care of a leper, you could raise the dead because the lepers were viewed like the rabbis would see them as the living dead, as, as first century zombies, so to speak. They were kind of the, the walking dead in the first century as people, as they were navigating this world. They were considered incurable, and, and to heal them would be on par with raising the dead. So this man was physically wounded. He was suffering from a disease, but his issues ran much deeper than that. Because not only was he physically wounded, he was also socially wounded. This was a man who was isolated from human contact, isolated from human connection. He had been quarantined from the moment he began to show symptoms of this disease. He would, he would be exiled from human community, exiled from his family, exiled from his friends. As the first century Jewish world would follow the protocol that was laid out in Leviticus chapter 13 that would detailing what you do with a person who has this type of sickness, this type of disease. How do you protect the company from that contagion? And so they would quarantine them. Luke chapter 13, for example, verse 45, the person who has a case of serious skin disease is to have his clothes torn and his hair hanging loose. And he must cover his mouth and cry out, unclean unclean. Now, think about that. From the moment he started showing symptoms and he moved outside of the city, outside of the camp, isolated from community, each time a person would approach him, instead of introducing himself with the dignity of a name, he had to declare himself according to his condition, crying out, unclean, unclean, every time another person walked near him as a warning saying, stay back, don't come any closer. If you come in contact with me, it will not go well for you. So they cry out, unclean, unclean. It goes on. He will remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside, outside the camp. This is a man who has not been invited to the table in years. He hadn't experienced the type of grace and community and mission that happens at the table. He hasn't interacted with his family and friends in quite a while. He is an outsider who declares himself, not by name, but declares himself by his condition. I am unclean. So he was wounded socially. 
And what this means is it kind of drives us to his deepest problem, his deepest wound, is the fact that he was wounded spiritually in the midst of all of this as well. That this man was not only physically disfigured and socially isolated, this man was spiritually alienated. He was spiritually alienated. He could not gather in the synagogue. He could not join the company of the redeemed in the worship of the creator. He could not rally with the rest of God's people to make offerings that could account for cleansing and offerings that could account for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Because he could not come near that stuff, he is the ultimate outsider, alienated from God, alienated from the company of the redeemed, alienated spiritually. And this is one of the things that makes leprosy one of the unique situations that you come, ag- come across in Scripture. That There are lots of things that Jesus heals in the New Testament. A lot of diseases that he heals. He heals blindness. He heals deafness. He heals sickness. He raises the dead. And in all of those instances, the language of healing is used. But when it comes to dealing with lepers, you don't find the language of healing as much as you find the language of cleansing. Because a leper's problem runs much deeper than just their physical deformity and their physical illness. Their deepest problem was the fact that because of how this disease is working from the outside in, disfiguring them physically, isolating them socially, it is leaving them alienated spiritually. And the only thing that can remedy that is cleansing. This type of language is the language used in the purification laws of ancient Israel. This is what this man is asking for. He doesn't just want to be healed. He wants to be cleansed. He doesn't just want to be delivered from this physical illness. He wants to be reconciled with his God because he's missing out on everything as a result of these wounds in his life. It's a powerful disease that works from the outside in disfigurement, isolation, alienation. But then the question is, what? so what are we to do with that? You know, we're not necessarily suffering in this particular kind of way. We're not wounded in these ways. And this is where I want you to think really well about what Mark's trying to do by presenting this story at this point in time in the gospel. Why is Mark chosen to give us a story of Jesus healing a leper in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry? Well, the more you read through the gospel of Mark, the more you begin to discover about what it means to be human, what it means to be fallen, what it means to be unclean. And you begin to discover the very thing that Jesus would teach his disciples, that what renders a person unclean isn't so much the things that they come in contact with in the world that is. What renders a person unclean is the sin within a person. And it is in this sense that we want to look at this story and see the leper as a living parable of the fallen human condition. A living illustration of what we are like. There's a sense in which we should read this story as if we are looking into a mirror. And the reason why I can say that is because in Mark chapter 7, Jesus would teach the disciples to think this way. Saying, look, you think you're going to be defiled just because you come in contact with a leper. But you need to remember that what defiles you isn't that which comes from the outside in. What defiles you is that which works from the inside out. Check it out. Mark chapter 7, verse 15. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. He goes on. For from within, out of the people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence. Envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all these evil things that are the result of misplaced worship ultimately. 
He says these are the things that defile us. It's the stuff that comes from within us and is expressed by us in this world. And so what you find is that this, this leper, this unclean leper, is a living parable of the fallen human condition. And what makes us different from him is that whereas in his situation, his disease works from the outside in, in all of our situation, our disease works from the inside out. Where we come into this world and the scriptures describe us as being sinful human beings who do not naturally love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. We do not naturally love one another as ourselves. We don't love God. We don't love people, which is what it means to be fully human. The scriptures say, look, you were not born that way. You're born in a different kind of way. You're born as with a sin nature that gives birth to all kinds of attitudes and actions over the course of your life when you misplace your worship trying to deal with that and you just can't get it. And it just seems to be leaving you more wounded over time. And so this sin works from the inside out where we come into the world, we are alienated from our God and our alienation from God results in being isolated from one another because we don't engage in healthy relationships with each other. And so we wind up isolated, we wind up in dysfunctional relationships. And this alienation, which gives way to isolation, then in the end results in disfigurement as all of us are destined to die. And that there is coming a day when your body is going to deteriorate. It is going to fall apart. And you will experience physical death. And so what you begin to see is that sin disfigures our humanity. It distorts us from being who God has created us to be. And as a result of this disfigurement, we, we accumulate wounds over the course of our days because we're trying to deal with what's wrong with us, and we deal with what's wrong with us in all these unhealthy ways, trying to solve our own problems, trying to make ourselves right, and we're trying to find some person, some place, something who can give us life, who can be worthy of our worship. And when we give ourselves to things other than the Creator or other than the Christ, those things eat us alive. They don't treat us well. They don't promote wholeness and healing within us. They do the exact opposite over time. And so what you find in this story is a moment where this man who's so desperate, he's so tired of being an outcast, he's so tired of his alienation and his isolation and his disfigurement, that the moment he sees Jesus coming near, he runs to him. And in desperation, he violates every social protocol that was common in that day. Instead of standing back and hollering at Jesus, unclean, unclean, he presses in. He has come to an end of himself, and he's saying, look, Nobody can help me. No one has been able to help me. I've caught wind of you, Jesus. Maybe you can help me. So he comes to him, and he lays down at his feet, and he cries out, If you will, you can make me clean. This man coming to an end, to the end of himself, and you and I are in our best places. We are postured for healing when we get tired when we get tired of being wounded, we get tired of living our lives in a suboptimal way where we're not loving God, not loving people, not seeing how much we are loved by our God. When we come to an end of ourselves and we run to the feet of Jesus and we ask Jesus, if you will, you can clean me. You can cleanse me. You can heal me. You can restore me. You can make me whole and new once again. This is where this guy is. 
And what he finds in this moment is a willing Christ. When he appeals to Jesus to, be, to make him clean, we're told in verse 41 that Jesus was moved with compassion. I love that phrase. That Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw this man. In compassion, Jesus viewed this leper's condition as one that is unworthy of anyone created in the image of God. That's what compassion does. If you want to be someone who ministers out of compassion the way Jesus does, you have to learn to see people as image bearers. And if they are image bearers, when you see things, wounds in their lives that that is unbecoming of an image bearer, wounds that are distorting the image of God in our lives, we want to be stirred with compassion towards that. We don't want to be stirred towards callousness in response to that. It's very easy to become calloused in this world. It's very easy to become calloused when you're interacting with wounded people. And you can't figure out why they can't seem to get their act together and why they can't seem to do better in certain ways. And these unhealthy, unholy habits that have accumulated as a result of them dealing with wounds over the course of a lifetime. And you get tired and grow callous, but Jesus doesn't grow calloused. He's moved with compassion. He sees this image bearer saying, look, your situation is not becoming of you. And as as a result of this, this is the same motivation that actually stands out in my mind when I think about the word compassion. I think about Matthew chapter 9. There's a moment when Jesus shows up in the city and he sees a crowd of people, all kinds of image bearers there, and, and he notices that they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, that they are harassed and helpless. They are wounded people like sheep without a shepherd. And we're told that when Jesus saw the crowds, he was stirred to compassion. Compassion was an ordinary response that Jesus gave when dealing with wounded people in this world. It's an incredible thing that Jesus ministers out of compassion. And notice how his compassion moves to action. It says that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched this man. Remember, this is a man who hasn't experienced human connection or human touch in a number of years. And the very first thing Jesus does is he reaches out his hand and he touches this leper. Other miracles in the Gospels that Jesus performs, he performs with words. He stands back and he just declares people healed. But in this instance, he doesn't speak first, he touches first. Why do you think that is? Well, I believe it's because Jesus knows that one of the deepest longings of the human condition is a longing for human connection, a longing for human community. And so Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches a man who has not been touched in years, demonstrating that, illustrating that. If you've ever been around or in perhaps a room where a delivery room where a woman may be giving birth and the doctor or the nurses receive the baby into the world, what's the first thing they do? They take that baby and they plop the baby up on his or her mom's chest and and immediately they start feeling human connection through touch, bonding in that way. It's one of our most basic needs as human beings, the need for connection, the need for community. And Jesus' move towards this man who hasn't been touched in decades is, is to touch him, to say, look, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of what you're like or what people have said about you. I'm going to touch you in compassion because that's what compassion does. Compassion moves towards the wounded. Compassion doesn't run away from them. And so Jesus touches the leper, but then he says a word. He speaks up, I am willing, be made clean. And here you begin to see Jesus ministering to the total person 
where on one hand he's touching this person. He's demonstrating the love and the connectivity he wants to have with this leper. And then on the other hand, he's speaking a word over him, declaring him clean because Jesus ministered to the total person and in ministering to the total person, it means there are times when you're going to do things for others in ministry, but there are also going to be times where you are declaring things over people in ministry where deed and words are fused together in the ministry of Jesus and we want deeds and words fused together in the way we represent Jesus in this city as well. So that we are both speaking and acting. We are touching and declaring as we minister to the whole person. This was Jesus' model. And I love this about Jesus because he doesn't relate to people in generic fashion. Jesus understands that a person's wounds are in many ways unique to them. That we are wounded in various ways and to varying degrees. Not all of our wounds look the same. And as a result, we need the Christ to minister to us where we are. We don't want him waving a wand. We want him coming personally and engaging us, touching us, speaking, speaking to us, ministering to the total person. Jesus doesn't, refer, doesn't relate to people in a generic fashion. He related to particular persons as he ministered to the total person, word and deed. When, it th- when you think about who we are as a church in this city and who we aspire to be when we say we value the image of the tourniquet, we're saying that we value being a place where wounded people are welcome and wounded people are not treated generically, but wounded people are treated particularly where we are ministering to the total person, recognizing the complexity of life in a fallen world and the complexity of our woundness, whether our wounds are mental, emotional, physical, or spiritual. We want to minister to the total person, which is what Jesus does here. And so one of the ways we want to think about our church is think of our church as a hospital where wounded people are welcome. You don't have to, be, you don't have to walk in here in full strength, firing on every cylinder. You can step into this community and be honest about who you are and where you are in life. You can be honest about the wounds that you have suffered in this world, whether those wounds that you have inflicted upon yourself by misplacing your worship or wounds that somebody else has inflicted upon you because of their misplaced worship. Jesus ministers to the whole person, and this is a community where you will be ministered to In the fullest sense, we don't want to relate to anyone in a generic way. We want every particular person to be ministered to in particular ways. That's when the gospel comes alive. When you begin to discover the power of the gospel in your life in particular ways, God's grace expressing itself in your healing of particular wounds, that's when you're going to know the power of Jesus, the power of the gospel. That's when you're going to experience life change, healing, restoration, wholeness. Jesus brings this to bear in this man's experience. He reaches out, he touches him, then he says, I am willing, be made clean. And in verse 42, we're told that immediately the leprosy left him. And he was made clean. This man experienced healing instantly. As this wounded worshiper comes into contact with the creator of the universe and his disease is dispelled. 
all of a sudden his physical health is restored. And you're going to find his social health is restored as he's able to return to town and starts talking and interacting with people again. And no doubt, his spiritual health is restored because he knows who has touched him. He knows who has made him clean. So when he's talking to people, he's talking to people about what Jesus has done for him. As he has experienced this power of Jesus at work in his life. And so Jesus heals him. His life is transformed. But then look at what happens next. Verse 43, it says that Jesus sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now, there's a lot of things happening there. One thing I would remind you of is that when Jesus came into the world, he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He did not come to remove any any iota from God's law in the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it all. And so one of the ways that he is fulfilling the law, he's showing that he is not abolishing it, is by telling this man to return and to go through the sort of the protocol for what happens when a man is healed or recovers from a disease, how he can be restored right, make it known to the priest, offer a thanks, uh, make a thanksgiving offering to God, saying, look, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I'm going to illustrate that in you. But he is also... What he's doing here is he wants the guy to be quiet because he's not ready to go to the cross yet. It's not his time yet. His hour has not arrived. And he knows once word starts to spread that the Messiah is doing these kinds of things, that Jesus is acting like God, the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees are going to conspire. The Roman government is going to come after him. They are going to want to put him to death. And so Jesus is warning. He warns people throughout the Gospels, look, just kind of, Hold it, keep it to yourself as of now, and we'll deal with other stuff later. You can make it known later. But what, the, what does the guy do? He's sternly warned, look, don't tell anyone, but he immediately goes out, and he can't keep quiet. He's exuberant in his disobedience. He can't keep it to himself, and he winds up going and telling everyone in verse 45, he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread, spread the news. So think about this. This leper is disobeying Jesus. This man who's just been healed by Jesus is now not obeying Jesus. But look what happens. Because of this man's disobedience, we're told in verse 45 that with the result that Jesus, it got to a point where Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. So at the beginning of the story, where are we? You have a leper who can't go into town. You have a savior who's going into all kinds of towns. You come to the end of the story and what's happened. Now you have a leper who can go into towns. And you have a savior who can't go into town. What you find in this moment is a remarkable reversal. What you find in this moment is the way in which our deepest wounds are ministered to ultimately by the Savior, by Jesus. What you find in this moment is the leper and Jesus changing places. And because they trade places, this is an illustration for what Jesus will ultimately do at the end of the gospel where he is trading places with all those who are disobedient. He's trading places with all those who are misplacing their worship. He is trading places 
with all those who are suffering in a fallen world, dealing with all kinds of wounds. You come to the end of the gospel and what is happening, Jesus is trading places. A remarkable reversal occurs. And and you find this moment on the cross where Jesus basically dies the same way this leper lives. That Jesus would die the same way the leper lived. He was physically he was physically wounded on the cross. So that when Christ is crucified, he's physically wounded, he's deteriorating, he's disfigured on the cross, beaten, bloodied, bruised, battered, all while being crucified on the cross. Jesus is suffering Social wounds in that moment. When he goes to the cross, he goes to the cross by himself after being betrayed by a friend. After one of his closest friends denies denies even knowing him, Jesus went to the cross all by himself, experiencing isolation, dying the way the leper lived. And then as Jesus died on the cross, what else happened? Well, he experienced alienation, didn't he? The spiritual wound of alienation, the moment Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus in that moment experiences a type of hell on the cross as he takes the ultimate place of that leper and he takes the ultimate place of every spiritual leper who would come to find life in him. As Jesus was physically wounded, socially wounded, spiritually wounded. And we're told at the end of the story that there's a moment when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathed his last. Mark tells us that inside the temple there was a veil, a big curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where God's presence was believed to most intensely dwell. And worshipers couldn't go into that space. They had to stand back. No one could approach it except for the great high priest once a year. But when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, we're told that that curtain tore from top to bottom. And Jesus was opening a way for sinners to come into the presence of God. He was making a way for wounded worshipers to come and to find their lives healed and restored, cleansed and forgiven because of their in, they're reconciled to the reality of who God is and what God is about. So on the cross, Jesus died as basically an outsider so that people like you and I could be brought inside. When you read through the the scriptures and you kind of spend some time thinking about the purification laws and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and kind of think about some of those things, and you go to the New Testament, you step into the book of Hebrews, which really draws the connections between that stuff and Jesus to help us understand, okay, what's all this stuff about blood and goats and offerings in the Old Testament? Why is that important? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us why it's important. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, there's this connection made between what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I want to share with you That verse, so you can just kind of see it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering, those carcasses, those bodies are burned outside the camp. They are taken outside the city. Therefore, Jesus, get this, also suffered outside the gate, outside the camp, so that he might sanctify, so that he might cleanse the people by his own blood. That we are cleansed, forgiven, we are restored, and the process of healing has begun in our lives because Jesus has traded places with us. 
Because Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. And he rose from the grave, conquering our sin, conquering our spiritual enemies, conquering death itself, so that we might be brought into the reality of God and find our deepest wounds being ministered to in ways that no other person, place, or thing in this world can. And as we step into that reality, we step into that presence, the worship of Jesus is what really brings healing to our deepest wounds. I love Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where it is prophesied that Jesus would be pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed, get this, by his wounds. He's wounded, we are healed. He was crucified so that we can be rescued. He was brought outside the camp so that we could be brought inside into the presence of God. And this is where healing happens. This is where things begin to change in our lives because at this point we realize that the work that Jesus has done for us is a work that moves from the inside out because we put our faith in Jesus and he gives us new hearts. He cleans us, he cleanses our lives, forgives us of our sins. And then as we grow in light of that reality, that healing work begins to flesh itself out and work itself out all the days of our life so that we grow in our ability to love God. And we grow in our ability to love one another. We grow in our ability to love our city and to love those who are hurting and wounded in this world. As we are experiencing Jesus bringing healing and restoration to our lives, we see that replicated, replicated in the way that we minister to one another. Touching and teaching, speaking and doing, all in the service of Jesus. Really, we're just living out what Jesus has already done or we are living out what Jesus is currently doing within each of our lives. I mean, just think about who Jesus is on the cross. Jesus showed himself as to be our sacrifice of atonement, the source of our forgiveness, the way our sins are cleansed. But you know that when Jesus rose from the grave, he revealed himself to be the victorious king who conquers our spiritual enemies and conquers death And so we can be delivered from demonic influence and demonic oppression. We can be delivered from various strongholds and attachments and unholy habits that have worked themselves into our lives that are contributing to our woundedness, that liberation and freedom, victory can happen as we draw near to Jesus and look to Jesus and find life in Jesus. But then we also know that Jesus is the great physician who is bringing healing to the totality of our person, working from the inside out. And as we move through this life, he gives us flashes of that in the here and now. But we know ultimately and finally there's coming a day when even though death may still take us, death cannot keep us, that resurrection is going to happen. And when we resurrect, we are going to be given glorified bodies that will never be harassed, that will never be helpless once again glorified bodies with which we will worship God forever and enjoy one another together forever and ever and ever as we see this movement from the inside out, this healing process that starts now and will ultimately be completed then. And so what that means is that we start living our lives with an awareness of these realities coming into the presence of Jesus, worshiping Jesus 
drawing life from Jesus, asking Jesus to give us whatever we need in a given moment so that we're constantly putting ourselves at his feet and asking him, would you clean us? Will you heal us? Will you forgive us? Will you bind these wounds within us so that we might live our lives as healed people, people who have been and are being healed by the wounds of Christ? So when we talk about the tourniquet, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about bringing every one of our wounds, every one of our needs, every one of our struggles to the feet of Jesus and being ministered being ministered to by him over and over and over again until all is said and done. And so we worship Jesus together in light of that, even, even now. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us grace to see the beauty of what you have done for us in Jesus? Would you bring us to an end of ourselves so that we would not continue to flounder apart from you, but that we would flourish in you, that we would draw near in the worship of you. Forgive us for the ways in which we have misplaced our worship. Forgive us for the ways in which we have directed our worship away from you. And would you give us grace to return to your feet and to cry out to you for cleansing, to cry out to you for healing, to cry out to you for, for liberty, for freedom, for forgiveness, for all that our hearts and our souls and our bodies need now. God, I pray over these next few moments that you would tend to us, that you would minister to us and among us, all in the name of Jesus. Amen.